is right here. We just celebrated one year of marriage. Um, yeah, it's a really big deal. One year with me is no small feat. Um, but we're going to go into the first 14 verses. There we go. Now I can tell it's on. All right, first 14 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, so we'll start by reading those. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. And they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Scripture. We thank you that you have chosen, Lord, not just to call us to be your people, that you've covenanted with us, Lord, but you've also given us instruction through your word and through your spirit. I pray that both of those things would be at work this morning, that you would uh, soften the hearts of every single one of us in this room. Be willing to receive the instruction of your word, Lord, that we'd flee idolatry for true satisfaction in Christ. Pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. So we need to notice the nature of this passage as a warning. And, um, Paul took a little bit of a hi- hiatus in this passage uh, in chapter, uh, uh, chapters 9, just briefly. But in, in reality, what he's doing is he's returning to what he was speaking to back in chapter 8. In chapter 9, he defends his right to be an apostle. He defends his right to certain things as an apostle of the Lord But he also defends his opportunity and defends the reasoning around um, the necessity to sometimes give up those rights for the sake of the gospel. And what he's calling us to in this passage, and what he's saying to us, and what he was saying to the church at Corinth, is in the midst of the culture that you are in, in the midst of the area around you, and and, in the types of people and the types of things that you're coming across, as you seek things and see things that are built around satisfying the desires of the population around you and calling your own heart away from its true desire, that we need to seek true satisfaction and true fulfillment in Christ. Paul's two letters deal at length with a propensity for that, tor- that type of posture towards life. And he's telling us that it really has no place in the church. It has no place in the hearts of believers. Again, he starts the passage with the word for, which calls us to look back to chapter 9. And so we need to keep that idea, the defense of his apostleship, the defense of his rights, the fact that he decided to lay some of those aside for the gospel, 
in mind as we're reading chapter 10. He further presses into, in the end of chapter 9, how he subdues these desires in pursuit of Christ. So not only does he rightfully, or willingly rather, give up the rights that are his, but he then continues to push the desires for those rights down. Now he's calling us to do the same. We, at King's Cross, we, we, we get to meet in a, a recovery facility. So every Sunday morning, we get there nice and early, we set up in a big room out front, and our church comes together, and then often we have several different types of people walk by the door, walk in the door. There's windows on all sides, so people walk by. But we, we on a regular basis, have several people who are very, very active in their addiction recovery joining us in church. And it has served as an opportunity for my heart to take a look at the things that they're going through, the way that they're fighting, the commitments that they've made, and consider the things in my own heart that might be addictions. To consider the things in my own heart that might be calling me away from my satisfaction in Christ. The majority of addictions aren't necessarily bad things. Um, in Manchester, a common addiction is heroin, so we're not really starting with a good thing at that point. But there's a lot of people who have addictions to pain medicine that they've needed. They have addictions to, uh, to uh, uh, alcohol. They have addictions to... It's, it's, a, it's a, a variety of things. And, and while most of them, in, in that setting, we would say, well, you know, the starting place was bad, in our own hearts, there's something to consider where we might even be addicted to things like Paul is talking about. These are things that we can have and we could have, but there could be a sense in which we are supposed to suppress some of those desires in order to choose and seek something better. Our calling in life is not to be absorbed with even the good, but rather to set affections on things above. We are so good at making idols out of decent things. Out of decent things. It's been a propensity in my own heart for as, as long as I've been a believer, which is a fairly short amount of time. To, 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 I, I liked your Alpha card. I was looking over Paul's shoulder and saw it. it said, pause Netflix and try Alpha. That is probably one of the biggest addictions in my life. I love to just go home after a long day at work and talking to people and dealing with people and selling to people and correcting people and, um, and just pause. I don't have to think. I don't have to do anything. I don't have any responsibility. It's just me and whatever entertainment they decide to put in front of me today. And Netflix is not in and of itself bad. It doesn't mean you can't watch Netflix and go to Alpha. But in choosing between those two things, I'll put a plug in. You can pay me later. Um, Alpha is probably the better choice if you've never gone through it. And so there is a propensity in our hearts to take very good, and there's probably better examples of very good things than that, and turn them into addictions that call our hearts away from Christ. John Calvin spoke of this super common phrase here you've probably heard before. The human mind, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Forge of idols. He clarifies that. The human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. We design them in our mind as it labors under dullness, nay, is sunk to the grossest ignorance 
It substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils, another is added. The God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind, in this way, conceives the idol, and the hand gives birth. He says, we tend to take the things that can even be decent, that can even be good, and often things that are just bad, and we bear them out in our minds, and then we work them out with our hands. And we craft these gods in our hearts. I think we all want fulfillment this morning. We all desire the feeling that comes with being satisfied, with being sure, with being assured. The question is, where do we find it? The point's not to say that seeking Christ will lay to rest all of these idolatrous desires. I don't think we're promised that in Scripture. But I do believe, and what I want to talk to today is a heart continually fixing its affections on Christ and His work will find their desires and their eternal standing is fulfilled in Christ. So I guess my main point this morning would be to flee idolatry for that fulfillment in Christ. I think there's three things we can look at in this passage about God that can help us do that. Three characteristics that are eternally and always coexistingly true about him. First of all, we have a providential God who gives. We can seek fulfillment, we can find fulfillment in a providential God who gives. Let's look at the first five verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. There's something you need to know. That our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And again, as I speak this morning, keep in mind this, this passage is a warning. I do want to look at positive aspects of the passage, but it's a warning to us. Our fathers, in verse 1, our fathers, he's, he is connecting us as Gentiles, but saved people, back to our covenant fathers, these patriarchs, these, these, these Israelites. Their promises are our promises. We are them. They are us. We are th- that people. We are God's covenant people. And the things that he did for them, he is doing for us. The posture of Paul in this passage is so backwards to my own when I think about the things that the Israelites went through. I get jealous of the things that they saw. I would love to see a sea parted and then all of my enemies crushed behind me. Maybe not quite. Yeah, yeah, probably. I'll stand by that. Um, I would love to be guided by a visible pillar. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing 99% of the time, including right now. And I would love to be guided by a visible pillar of fire or cloud that moves with me. I would love to wake up every morning and walk out in my front yard and pick up the food of angels and just bring it back inside and go back to Netflix and eat my breakfast. I would love to know that I have an eternal source of physical water at all times. I, I, I do, because this is America, but you know, you know what I mean. It, 
I get jealous. I do. I think about these things. But Paul's posture is completely different. He is not saying, listen, take courage. You have the same things they had. He's warning. He's saying, listen, all the spiritual blessings that you have today, they also had. They also had them. He doesn't start from a place of theirs being better and ours being the lesser. He starts from a place of ours being better and theirs being the lesser. And says, they had them too. And it did not do everything for them that you think it might do for you. This emphasizes two things, especially where the word all is given five times. Again, Paul is including the Gentiles, us, in the covenant community and warning that the Israelites' experience of redemption, idolatry, and destruction in that order is possible in our own situation, is likely in our own situation, is almost certain to be an experience of ours. All is given five times. The Israelites, two things here, the Israelites had all of the spiritual provisions that we have. All of the means of grace that we have. Again, the direction is back. Everything, every spiritual blessing that we're afforded today, they also had. We aren't to look back with jealousy. God is supernaturally working today just as much as he supernaturally worked back then, even through ordinary means. And number two, this was not enough to save them. These things weren't enough to save them. Some of them were destroyed. Some of them did fall. Some of them were physically overthrown by God in the wilderness. The ordinances and means of grace are not enough to save us, but I do want to focus on the fact that they do have sustaining power. Paul is also encouraging us here. This isn't just a warning. The means of grace that we are afforded, particularly in this passage, baptism and the Lord's Supper, And if you don't pick up on that, let's just look very quickly at verses 1-5 through again. This is the comparison. They were all baptized into the leadership of Moses through the sea, through the cloud. They were all baptized. They were all given spiritual food as we are. But these things are not enough to save. They don't have the same... They have the same sustaining power as the cloud, the fire, and even the events crossing the Red Sea and resulting in that baptism into Moses' leadership. Even the rock in the wilderness, the literal rock, like the walking rock that followed them around. They had a physical rock following them around the desert to provide water. It was not necessarily enough to ensure that their affections stayed in the right place. The passage goes as far as to say this rock was Christ. As I say, a spiritual provision for their faith as well as a physical provision for their need, just as we have. And the manifestation did not stop them from being overthrown. This is to say that the only, the death and applied blood of Christ that saves us is only the death and applied blood of Christ that saves us. Not resulting not the resulting benefits that can be experienced through association with Christ's people, as good and as beneficial as they can all be for us, and as sustaining as they can be for God's children, they do not save. It is possible to partake of the elements, to be baptized, 
to associate with God's people, to experience fellowship, to pray, to fast, to do all of these means of grace, to, to work them all out and not be exempt from being overthrown. These are images that draw our affections back to Christ, and I would add that they're extremely effective when we let them have their place. I, I, I grew up in um, a kind of an opposite direction my dad would have approached this as a child. He grew up Roman Catholic, which I'm probably very common experience in Haverhill. So I'm assuming that most of the people in here were probably Roman Catholic at some sort, in some way, as much as one can be. And then I, my dad was saved, and we, we really fell into a fundamentalism type of movement where this was literally just a cracker and juice to remind us of something. But in his upbringing, it was physical body and blood of Jesus. And what we're aiming at here is not those two things. There is power in this aside from it being a carnal power that transforms into the blood and body of Christ, but not so little power that it's just a reminder. It has sustaining power. It is the gift of a providential God who gives to his people to keep their affections on him. All of these things are. That was the whole point of everything he provided for the children of Israel. Keep your affections on me. His presence was there in the cloud. His presence was there in the rock. His presence was there in the food that he provided. It was all to turn their affections back to him. They're good for us and they're beneficial. I want to talk a brief moment about the Lord's Supper just to kind of give us that narrow road in the middle of those two kind of conflictions that I had in my upbringing. There's three quotes I want to pull from from a confession of faith that I find to be really helpful on it. The grace of faith, whereby the elect, the chosen, God's children, are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed to God, it is increased and strengthened. By the administration of the Lord's Supper, by baptism, by prayer, our salvation is strengthened. The work, the finished work, the complete work, the irreversible work that Christ does in our hearts at salvation is strengthened. It's empowered by what we do in communion. The Supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him for their spiritual nourishment and growth in him. It provides nourishment, spiritual Nourishment and growth. And lastly, worthy receivers do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally or corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ, being not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. If we could approach the Lord's table Sunday after Sunday with that posture, it would serve us far better than if we approach it as just a reminder of what Christ has done. There is a spiritual sustenance. There is a sustaining power in partaking in his death Sunday after Sunday. A reminder of his presence. 
a reminder of his goodness, something that calls us very powerfully back to our former affections on him. Very quickly, I'm going to give you six practical points for proper observation of the Lord's Supper. This is from Richard Brussell's book, The Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace. Uh, really good book if you, you're kind of really out in left field about what I'm talking about this morning as far as this is concerned. This is, it's a helpful book. He's deep, so you have to read it really slowly. At least I did, and probably twice. But one, the Lord's Supper is not a mere memorial. It's not a reminder, not just a reminder. It's also present communion with Christ. So if you didn't get the three quotes that I read, try to remember these this morning when we take communion. It's, it's present communion with Christ. It's present communion. The Lord's Supper is not merely a time of reverent reflection, though it is. It is also a time of joyful celebration in Christ's presence. The Lord's Supper should not be administered infrequently. It should be taken often because it is communion with Christ. And the Lord's Supper highlights the past, historic work of Christ, the present, communion with Christ, and the future, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Pastors should remember to declare all three aspects when we administer this ordinance. There's so much at work in what is a cracker and juice or wine. It is the history of redemption that we get to experience Sunday after Sunday as we step into communion with Christ. And he yells for our affections to be turned on him. Yells for our desires to be met in him. We have a providential God who gives us good gifts that will fulfill and sustain us. We can also find fulfillment in a gracious God who warns us. A gracious God who warns us. Let's look at verses 6 through 11. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell on a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. This smacks to me of functional atheism. And really, everything I said about taking good things and turning them into idols does as well. It's been a problem in my own heart. Um, I think it's, a, it's an experience every Christian is going to come across in life at some point. And that is taking things to, to the point, following our desires to the point where we really just act without consideration to God. We, we act in a way where we don't necessarily live like he exists. By grace, generally brief periods of time before he does something to call us back into his presence. I, I use this example um, in a sermon not too long ago, but thankfully I'm not at the same church, so I'm going to use it again. Um, Alex and I, before we bought our house uh, earlier this year, we lived um, for the first six months of our marriage in an apartment, the third story, um, North Manchester over the Hooksit line. And the apartment had an extremely large amount of dogs, which is one of the reasons we picked it, because we wanted a dog and we needed something dog-friendly. An extremely large amount of dogs. 
And they had an ongoing issue where people would not clean up after said dog. Um, and it was a problem. So to the point where when you move in, they would give you like little dog bone shaped poop bag carriers, like three of them for you to like clip on your purse and your keychain and have on the leash. Uh, and then they put bags at every single dumpster on the property. So there was really no reason at all for you to not be able to clean up for your dog. Uh, didn't cost you anything, just bend over, pick it up, throw it away in the dumpster, all is done. I remember getting ready for work um, one morning. Uh, the window was open in our bedroom, and I am looking down across the parking lot, and the guy who would show off the new apartments to people as they were moving in was coming in with a family. Um, and about 10 minutes later, he was walking out, and a gentleman who lived in the apartment right below us was walking his dog, and he was coming kind of across this way as the gentleman who was showing the apartment off was coming this way. And so he beats him to the dumpster, grabs a bag, this gentleman goes this way, and he has this bag in his hand. He's got his dog there who's going to the bathroom on the ground. And he looks, make sure that guy's back still turned, looks that way to make sure no one's looking, looks this way to make sure no one's looking, as I'm watching him from up here. And <laughs> he just lets go of the bag, and lets it float across the parking lot, and doesn't clean him after the dog. So hopefully that illustrates what I mean by functional atheism. He looked all the way around him and never thought to look up one time. And I'm staring there like, come on, man. Like, that, that is, we have a small 15-pound dog, and what that dog just left behind is literally the size of my dog. You could have cleaned it up. It just, this is a problem. He had these two massive pit bulls, and oh, it was bad. But that's functional atheism. He was not looking up. He was giving zero consideration to the fact that somebody might be watching what he's doing, outside of the fact that he looked around to make sure nobody would. And we do this in our own lives. We, we, we participate in this. And what Paul is saying is that the Israelites, they had all the benefits of God's covenant people spoken of in verse 1-5, through five, and they were still messed up. And the same goes for us. Idolatry often follows on the heels of redemption. Idolatry often follows on the heels of redemption. It was a danger for the Corinthians because of the attitude and practices concerning food offered to idols. It's the case for us when we receive Jesus as Lord but decide to keep other things, no matter how good, in his position instead. He says these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul's drawing from Exodus 32 here. A story of the golden calf. I'm sure most of us know it. Where he's up in the mountain receiving commandments, receive, or not commandments at this point. Um, he's up in the mountain. Children of Israel are getting anxious. They don't think he's going to come back. They decide to give praise to the gods who freed them from Egypt. And Aaron, the high priest, constructs this golden calf for them. And this is what he's alluding to. Notice the language that he uses. He, he's not speaking to the Corinthians 
about their heart affections. He's instead using language that best suits the people he's speaking to. It's highly unlikely that the church at Corinth that he's speaking to is participating in any form of organized worship of these idols. It's far more functional than that. They're not going to church and worshiping idols. They're not physically bowing down in their times of prayer to these idols. But what they are doing is they're finding enjoyment in their feasts and their games. And the worship of the golden calf mixed with the word play, uh, pagan revelry, is the framework by which Paul judges, calls the Corinthians to judge, and calls us to judge the possibility that we may fall to the same fate if we follow the footsteps of our Israelite ancestors. Do we allow ourselves to enjoy things that take a place in our hearts that rightfully belongs to God? Maybe better worded, do we allow ourselves to enjoy them to that extent? Because I think we can still enjoy good things. But it's about the affection of our hearts. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Paul now calls on the gross sexual immorality the people of Israel participated in with Moabite women in Numbers 25. This is actually Paul tying sexual immorality back to the idolatry he was speaking of in the last verse. It was an invitation to sacrifice and eat the meat of sacrifices that tied the Israelites to the Moabites in the first place. Their heart affections, like, like the Calvin quote, their heart affections started in their minds with an invitation to participate, with a posture of worship, with a provision that God was already giving them. They were already sustained by his hand, but they wanted the meat. And it worked out into an action that they did. They, they participated in sexually immoral relationships. a true biblical example of an over and misused phrase, the slippery slope. A loss of true satisfaction due to the perversion of the object of our affection. He then says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and we're destroyed by serpents. This is Numbers 21 where the Israelites spoke back against God for lack of food and water. Two things they had. The phrase testing Christ is used as Christ has already been tied to the rock that was their supply of water in the desert. Psalm 78 seems to be alluded to here. I want to read that very quickly. Psalm 78, um, verse 14 through 18. In the daytime he led them with a cloud, and at night with a fiery light, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him. Rebelling against the Most High in the desert, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. Again, food is a good desire. I have every intention of eating when I leave here today. And later, and probably some more after that. But it can take the place and does take the place commonly that God should hold in our hearts. When God's people test his patience by insisting on things they crave 
rather than what he provides, they can be expected, they can expect to be met with judgment. That's what he's getting at in this. Paul's not really alluding to any one passage in the next verse, verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them they did, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer, but really something that followed the Israelites around the entire time they were in the desert. They would complain an affront on the goodness of God who provides for them, and the Lord's angel would carry out judgment. References to this destroyer are found all throughout historical books in the Old Testament. Chronicles talks about them. Numbers mentions, mentions the destroyer several times. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul knows his audience and the trouble and temptation and the trial that they'll face as a result of the time in which they live. And he is saying these things so that we would see what occurs as a result of idolatry. And they were written down so that we could learn from it. We have a choice here to pursue our craving, to make functional gods out of the things that are not God, or to look to Christ as the fulfillment of our satisfaction, the sustainer of our salvation, the giver of every good and perfect gift. We can trust the teachings of our gracious God. We can flee our idols and we can run to him as the source of our satisfaction. And as gracious, as hard as these things are to read, and as hard as they are to consider that they're possible in our lives, it is gracious of God to include these things in his instruction to us. And lastly, and I'm almost done, I promise, we can find fulfillment in a faithful God who helps us. A faithful God who helps us. Look at verse 12 through 14. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If you've missed the gospel in this message so far, or you've been waiting for it, and I just haven't given it, here it is. Our faithful God helps through his teaching. Take heed of the words that Paul has said. Lest you fall as the Israelites said. He's not joking. Spirit moves on Paul to write these things because they're absolutely necessary for us to remember them. It's absolutely necessary that we remember them. Two things come to mind with this verse. We can fall into a type of Christian lethargy uh, we can be lazy, where we can rest on the promises of God in such a way that we do not want it to require anything of us. We do not want them to require anything of us. We want the promises of God, we want the fulfillment of those promises without the things that he attaches to those promises. We want his blessing and nothing going back in the other direction. That is not what we are called to, that's not what we are promised but it's been more and more apparent that that exists in my own heart, that exists in the church at large, especially as a really good movement, the gospel-centered movement, has kind of exploded in the last decade. We want to be gospel-centered. We want to be capital G, gospel-centered. If there's something larger than capital, I want that. I do want to be gospel-centered. But I don't want to do this to agree that I cheapen the word grace. 
I don't want to do this to the degree that I forget that holiness without which you will not see God is a verse in our Bibles. That most of the promises of God after salvation are contingent on my posture towards Him. My position with Him. My worship of Him. My following of Him. And ultimately, in the point today, my satisfaction in Him. These aren't labors. He wants to satisfy us. He wants to see us satisfied with what He offers because He knows it's best. We can also fall into a type of negligence where we rely on the gifts that we've been given. The good things talked about in verses 1-5 through as if they are beyond the reach of danger. That the gifts of God are outside of the scope of the devil's work. And they're not. When we do that, we expose those gifts and those gifted with those gifts ourselves to the attacks of Satan. Baptism, communion, fellowship, prayer, these things are to be entered into and worked out with consideration to our motives. Our posture towards God's satisfying work in our hearts. And the posture of those involved. They're not to build up in us a conceited confidence but rather a reminder that we desperately need something greater than ourselves if we are to persevere to the end. They point, us to a, they point us to Christ because He is what we need to be assured of victory. He gives us salvation. He gives us assurance of salvation. He is both its author and its finisher. And we can flee our idols for full fulfillment of all we seek and need in Him. verse 13, Paul's reference to God's faithfulness here shows an opposition of powers. God is faithful. Our temptation is merely human, but the power against it is divine. And it will bring us through. We sang that earlier today. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. One of my favorite songs. I need it regularly. The, the minor temptations, if you were feeling overburdened this morning with the temptation that you continually fall into, the promise of Christ for His redeemed people is that it has very little power compared to His divine work. Compared to the satisfaction that He can provide to your heart in opposition to the satisfaction that you seek in those things. Notice there's no promise to remove this temptation. And that can be discouraging. There's no promise to remove this temptation, but there is a promise of escape. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's natural to man. It's a real and certain part of the Christian experience. The fact that the word some is used in each instance in verse 7-10, through 10, shows that the temptation, even the temptation the Israelites experienced, was not universal. It was not irresistible. It didn't touch every single one of them. Not in the same way. Now, they all would have experienced it, but they did not all fall to it. There was a way of escape. That God does not allow us to be exposed to irresistible temptations is a reflection of His faithfulness to us. And closes, therefore, my beloved brother, flee idolatry. Flee it, and flee it by running to Christ. 
Set your affections on the giver of life and breath, the source of joy and happiness. Taste and see that He is good. And allow that to turn your affections for the things that have taken place bitter. I'm sorry, taken His place bitter. The only way to unseat your idols is to seek fulfillment and satisfaction in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the promises that You've given to us. We thank You for the uh, offering, Lord, of satisfaction, of true satisfaction that we can find when we desire You above all else. We thank You for the good gifts that You've given us. We pray that these things would not overcome You in, in the place that You hold in our lives. Thank You for Your promise to sustain us till the end. Well, that we do have work to do, but it's not a work that we rely on, but we can rely on the work of Your Son. pray all these things in Your holy and precious name. Amen.